Well, every, every Easter, even though somebody else always says it first, I have to say it. He's risen. He risen That's pastoral privilege. They, like, I, we always get to do that. That's what we do. I love that. Well, happy Resurrection Sunday to all of you. This day, as I'm sure is not surprising to anyone, marks the high point in the Christian calendar. What you may not think about but is equally true, is that this day marks the high point of the entire arc of human history. Because of what this day represents, we celebrate the fact that all of God's promises to us are secure. And the reason we can celebrate that is because it's evidenced by the fact of the empty tomb. That's what the empty tomb means. Everything Jesus said, everything God had promised, all that was he, was he claimed to be, He claimed to do, dying for us, taking our sin, forgiving us, opening the gate that we might have fellowship with the Father, all of that was crazy nonsense if, if He just died. But it's good news if He rose again to prove that it was true. And that's what we celebrate not just on Easter Sunday, but on every Sunday and every day in between. That is the testimony of the Christian life. So praise God for the resurrection. I want to ask you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2 this morning. If you are using the Bible that's uh, provided for you there on the seat back, you'll find it on page 995. 995. 2 Timothy 2. We, we've been in 2 Timothy uh, actually, uh, most of 2019 so far, and we'll continue to be in this, this book for another month or so. And today's passage is a passage that we actually skipped over a few weeks ago because I said I wanted to come back to it on Easter Sunday. Paul here in this text talks about the resurrection. And what he's doing here is he's affirming everything that I just said about the, the, the truth of the resurrection and what it represents He's affirming, what does it mean for all of us? For all of us. No matter who you are this morning, whether you have trusted Christ, you claim to be a believer in Christ, or not. Paul has a word here for what the resurrection means for all of us. Are you in 2 Timothy 2? Look over at verse 8. Paul says, remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. What he wants us to understand here, I just went one too far, is that Christ's resurrection means this. It means that Jesus is the Savior and Jesus is the King. If you've been with us over these last few months as we've been studying this letter from Paul to Timothy, you probably gather that this phrase at the beginning of verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, is a key theme of the epistle. We keep coming back to that over and over again because Paul keeps pointing back to that over and over again. It's, it's all about Jesus. That's the thing that we need to, to know and cling to and believe. Remember Jesus Christ. And Paul says that the way that we rightly remember Jesus Christ is by holding fast to the Gospel that Paul preached. What Paul wants us to remember is that this gospel of Jesus Christ is not a religious system. 
The Gospel is, is not just some methodology for us to follow, but rather, it's an announcement. The Gospel is, is, is an announcement. It's something to be spoken and proclaimed. It's literally good news to be heralded. And in this verse here, Paul gives two significant facts about Jesus that make Him supremely worth announcing and supremely worth remembering. The first one is this. He says, remember Jesus Christ, the offspring of David. He is the offspring of David. In other words, He is the true King. This is actually a pretty incredible statement for Him to make about Jesus. But this incredible statement about the identity of Jesus is rooted in the Old Testament covenant promise that God made to King David. And that promise is at the heart of the message of the entire Old Testament. It appears time and time again. The, the, the Scriptures keep pointing back to this. David, of course, was God's chosen king over Israel. And of all the kings that were over Israel, David was by far and away the greatest. And because of the promises within the covenant that God made with David, we call it the Davidic covenant, everybody knew that the messianic king, that, that one day that, that this Savior that God had promised to send to redeem mankind from sin, everybody knew that that king whose kingdom would last forever would one day come from David's line and would one day sit on David's throne. This is what the Lord said to David. We find it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He said, when your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers. In other words, after you've died, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish His kingdom. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before Me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's the Davidic covenant. And again, it gets pointed back to over and over again throughout the Old Testament. I put a couple up here for you to see in Psalm 132. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. And the prophet Jeremiah says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. This Davidic covenant is central to the Old Testament and the rest of the Old Testament looks expectantly towards the arrival of this king. This is the great hope of Israel and it's the great hope for the world. The king's arrival would change everything. This is the most important promise God makes to His people in the Old Testament. And then... Some 2,000 years ago, something remarkable happened. An angel appeared to a young peasant girl from Nazareth named Mary and told her that the king would soon be born. And the angel told Mary that she had been chosen by God to carry this divine child. And when he arrived, when he was born, the New Testament writers identified his arrival as the arrival of the Davidic king. Look with me on the screen at Matthew chapter 1. This is the opening verse of the New Testament. 
It says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. John chapter 7, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? In Acts chapter 13, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. And then we hear from Jesus Himself in Revelation 22. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. I am the bright morning star. That's the, that's the great message of Scripture. It all points to Jesus. That's what, that's what Paul keeps talking about when he says it's about Him. Cut straight to Jesus. Keep remembering Jesus. This is what He has in mind when He makes this Gospel announcement. He's saying Jesus is the King we've been waiting for. And that's a shocking announcement. It's a shocking announcement. If you're in the first century and you're hearing this, you might say this. You might say, um, this man, this Jesus, this Jesus who lived a humble life, who came from an unremarkable and, and, and irregarded region like Galilee, this Jesus who, who died a criminal's death on a Roman cross, this Jesus who never ascended a throne in Jerusalem, the throne in Jerusalem didn't even exist as Israel had been annexed by the empire of Rome at this point. How could this man be the Davidic king? How could he be the son of God? you gotta, you got to admit, it would sound pretty incredible and unbelievable to make a claim like that about a guy like Jesus unless the second thing that Paul says about Jesus in his Gospel is true. And that is this. He's risen from the dead. This Jesus is the King, and we know it because He's risen from the dead. In other words, He's the true Savior. This death of Jesus was part of God's good news plan all along. We don't understand the mind of God, but according to the wisdom of God, Jesus' death on the cross on Good Friday was the means that He had ordained by which sinful, broken people like you and me would be reconciled to the Father. That our guilt would be placed upon the perfect, spotless, righteous Son of God. And that the death that He died there would be the just penalty for our sin. That by His wounds, as the prophet Isaiah prophesied, we would be healed. That's what the cross represents for all those who trust in Christ's death by repentance and faith. The debt to God that we owe for sin has been paid. Our slates have been wiped clean. We've been completely forgiven of all of our sin. Our past sin, our present sin, our future sin. And we know that's true because the resurrection on Sunday validates all of it. Christ rising from the dead. He defeats death. Is the assurance that everything He said and everything He did, in fact, everything He claimed to be, the Son of God, 
the promised Savior of mankind, all of it is true. Do you know the Bible never presents the resurrection of Jesus as a matter of faith? It presents it as a matter of fact. It presents it as a, as a, as a historical event verifiable by witnesses. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. That's the testimony of Paul here as he writes this. He said, you could go ask these guys. Then He appeared to James. Then to all of the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. The resurrection is not presented as a matter of faith, but a matter of fact. What is presented as a matter of faith is that God would choose to accomplish our salvation in this very unexpected way by the death of His own Son. Think about that. Could it be that the eternal Son, the author of life, could actually die? Well, it would have to be that way. Because if God is just, if He's righteous, if He's fair, and if He's good, then sin must be punished. Yet, because God is also merciful, He chooses to take that punishment for us. Jesus' identity as the, the offspring of David affirms His full humanity. He was fully human. And that's important because only flesh and blood can die. But His identity here as the risen Christ affirms His full humanity. He is fully God. And that is important because only God can defeat death by raising Himself to life. And so faith is this. It is trusting in this plan of God to be effective for your own salvation. Faith backed by the historical facts of Christ's birth and His life and His death and His resurrection, acknowledge Him then, yes, to be the only Son of God. And believing in Him to be the necessary atoning sacrifice to pay your debt, to wash your guilt away. Saving faith says this, Jesus, You are the King. Be My King. That's the announcement of the Gospel. That's Paul saying here, this is what you need to remember about Jesus. He is the true offspring of David. He is truly risen from the dead. Bottom line, the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied. That's the good news. And because that's true, what Paul now does is he turns to a kind of a poetic axiom. It's possibly a creed this might have been a song even that was sung by the early church. And he turns here to inform us of what the resurrection means for all of us. Look down at verse 11. He says, The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. 
If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I think what Paul is doing by turning to this song or creed or or axiom or whatever it is that he's turning to that was probably very familiar to the church here in Ephesus that he's writing into, I think he's giving a word first to believers. Then secondly, he's giving a word to the non-believer. That's why I titled the message what the resurrection means for everyone. There's a word here for the believer, for the non-believer, and I think maybe at the end, even a word for both together. But let's begin with looking at this word to the believer. He says, if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. What does that mean? Well, Andy and, and, uh, and Jeremy actually kind of preached this part of my sermon, I think, already. They explained this well. But, but it means two things simultaneously. If we've died with Him, we'll live with Him. First, it means that we, we as believers, what it means to be a believer is that we die to ourselves. We die to self. We renounce our own claim to be our own kings. When we place our faith in Jesus as the true king and we forsake sin and we follow him, our old life then, we're told, passes away. We're not like we used to be. We, we live differently. We've been, as Jeremy so eloquently told us earlier, we've been put to death with him on the cross. And Romans chapter 6 is very helpful here. Just listen to what Paul says there. He says, we were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death. That's what we witnessed here with Jasmine a little bit earlier. She was identifying with the death of Christ. We're buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So in that sense, our resurrection with Jesus that's presently experienced is a resurrection to a new life that we would live differently. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So that's the first thing that it means that if we've died with Him, we'll live with Him. The second though, is that it also means that when we physically die one day, which we all will, we too that day will be resurrected to life eternal with Jesus. So we die now to self. We'll die eventually physically. Either way, physical and spiritual, there's resurrection. If we die with Him, we will live with Him. Romans 6 says, if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. So just as death did not have the final word over Jesus, it will not have the final word over believers. Praise God. So how do you know if you've died with Christ? How do you know if that describes you? Well, as he's hinting here, your life will be marked by endurance in the faith. If we endure with Him, we will also reign with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. Jesus said something very much like that. He said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's Matthew 10.22. So in other words, it means this. It means newness of life is marked by, is evidenced by transformation. Again, 
change. We no longer love our sin. We love God. We, we, we love our neighbors. We keep His commands. We devote ourselves wholly unto Him. That's what it means to endure by the grace of God. And for those whose lives are marked by this gracious transformation of life, the promise here is that we will reign with Him. In other words, we will be with our King in the kingdom of heaven. We will reign with Him as co-heirs of the riches of God forever. That's what the resurrection means for followers of Christ. His resurrection is the certain assurance of your resurrection. The empty tomb not only means death could not hold Jesus, it means He can't hold His people either. So that's the word to the believer. Then He turns to a word to the non-believer. Verse 12. The end of verse 12. He says, if we deny Him, He will also deny us. So if, we, if we've died with Him, we'll live with Him. If we endure will reign with Him. But if we deny Him, He'll also deny us. Jesus also said this in Matthew 10. He said, So everyone who acknowledges Me before men, I will acknowledge before My Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies Me before men, I will also deny before My Father who is in heaven. The resurrection of Jesus again, is proof that He's the true King. So for the non-believer to deny Him is for that person to then say to the true King, I don't want to renounce my own throne. I don't accept your position as King. And because of the fact of the, of the resurrection, that's foolish. It's foolishness. It denies ultimate reality. He has risen and He is reigning. And therefore, it's an act of treason against your Maker, against the Creator to whom all glory and allegiance are due. He alone is King and therefore He alone is worthy. Because Jesus reigns and rules, in heaven. One day, we're all going to stand before Him. We're all going to stand before Him. And for the non-believer, it means you're going to stand before Him in your sin. And the scariest thing that you could ever hear is for Jesus to say to you, I never knew you. Depart from Me. You doer of lawlessness. So for the non-believer, the resurrection then, please hear this, is the advance warning that judgment is coming. The King has been raised. Sinful rebellion of human beings has failed. The resurrection changes everything. And since Jesus has risen from the dead, it means that everything in human history now is coursing towards, at full speed ahead, judgment. Listen to what Paul preached in his Gospel. Remember, he says, remember Jesus has preached in my Gospel. This is what Paul preached in Acts 17. 
He says, the times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He's fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this, He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. He will judge the world by Jesus and the resurrection is the assurance that that's true. So the resurrection, among other things, is the assurance that God means business. Judgment is coming. So all unbelievers, be warned. You say, why? Is, is, is God just some kind of cosmic bully? No. This is where I want to turn to the last line of this poem or song. And here's where I think there's, there's perhaps a word to both the believer and the non-believer. Look at that last line. It says, if we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. I say this is a word to both believers and non-believers because scholars and commentators have kind of wrestled with this phrase really for centuries debating whether this, this was written for the believer or the non-believer. And there is some biblical support for either reading. But I, I, I think the context of this passage makes me think first and foremost that this is actually a message to the non-believer. And I say that because there's, there's parallelism in the, in the axiom or parallelism in the poem. The first two lines, if we've died with Him, we'll live with Him. If we endure, we'll also reign. So that, there's that parallel between sort of dying and enduring. Living and reigning. And then these last two lines, if we deny, He'll deny. If we're faithless, He's faithful. Denying and faithless, I think, mean the same thing. It is without faith. And that phrase then gives explanation as to why judgment awaits the true king's deniers. Christ remains faithful to Himself. Which is to say this, He remains faithful to His justice. He remains faithful to His righteousness. He remains faithful to His perfection. Therefore, He cannot be unjust. It would be unjust for Him to ignore sin. It would be unjust for Him to let the guilty go unjudged. He wouldn't be good if He didn't do away with evil. And to deny the King is the epitome of evil. So no, God's not a cosmic bully. He's faithful to His justice and righteousness. He's faithful to all that is good. And that's why I think this is a yet again another warning to the unbeliever. The resurrection is the assurance of judgment. He won't deny Himself. So if that's you this morning, if that's you this morning, I, I, I invite you, I plead with you, turn to Him. Repent of sin. That, that means just 
recognize that, that by saying, I'm my own king, that it's wrong. That you've offended the true king. Turn from that. Repent. Admit your guilt. And believe in the true king. The gospel is good news. The gospel is good news. The good news is this. He stands ready to forgive you. He stands ready to forgive you because of His finished work on the cross on your behalf. When Jesus died, your sin, repentant sinner, was placed on Him so that forgiveness could be offered to you. And His resurrection, again, is the security for you of your eternal life in His kingdom. So, believe. I said there's a, I think a word to both, at least possibly a word to both. There may be a word here to the believer as well who wavers in their faith. I wonder if any of you might be feel that way this morning. Wavering in your faith. And this word to you is another evidence of the mercy, grace, and goodness of God. Do you, you recall Good Friday? Peter denied Christ three times. Was that faithlessness? Was that without faith? Or was it just weak faith? You know, Christians sometimes have weak faith. But there's a positive promise, I think, in this verse for you as well. And it's the same promise. He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. If you're in Christ, you're robed with, you're clothed with Him. He cannot deny Himself. Your salvation in Him is unshakable. So what's the difference between faithlessness and weak faith? Well, let's consider Peter again. Peter denied Christ. But his denials were followed by immediate repentance. He wept bitterly when he heard that rooster crow. He remembered that Jesus had told him that this was going to happen, right? He, it broke his heart. He repented. And Jesus then sought him out in his distress and restored him. So Christian, listen, you were saved by faith, yes. That's one of the hallmark core doctrines of the Christian faith. We are saved by faith. But listen to this. This is important. You're not saved by the measure of your faith. You're saved by the object of your faith. You're saved by Jesus Christ. God doesn't demand from you a perfect faith. What He grants to you is a saving faith. And that saving faith believes that it was Jesus who lived the perfect life that you can't live. It was Jesus who died the death that we deserve to die. And it's Jesus who by His resurrection announces to you that His victory is all sufficient to raise us up 
on the last day as well. Jesus did it. Jesus did it all. And this is what the resurrection means for everyone. For the non-believer, it's a warning of coming judgment. But for those who have placed their faith in the risen Christ, even if that faith is imperfect, it's the assurance that we too will be raised to new life in Him, reigning with Him in His eternal kingdom forever because His work on the cross is finished. That's why Easter Sunday is the high point of human history. That's what we celebrate this morning. All of God's promises to us are secure because Jesus is resurrected. Our Redeemer lives.